Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. Unlike a lot of guests we've had on this show over the years, Moshe Kasher didn't grow up dreaming about being a comedian. Before turning to comedy, he was a teenage alcoholic, a sign language interpreter, and a relatively successful rave promoter in the Bay Area. Those distinct sides of himself are just three of the six areas he explores in his excellent new book, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes, available now wherever you get your books. The other three scenes, by the way, are his devotion to the Burning Man Festival, his very complicated relationship with his Hasidic Jewish roots, and, of course, stand-up comedy. That last one led to him marrying his wife, Natasha Legero, who has been on this podcast multiple times and made headlines recently for going topless at the Hollywood Improv in a nod to the often shirtless comedian who went up before her, Burt Kreischer. I had to start by asking Moshe for his reaction to his wife's unexpected viral moment. But before we get into our conversation, let's listen to a clip of Moshe on Conan talking about what it was like to grow up as the hearing son of two deaf parents. Raised in a deaf household. My parents were super into hip hop. There are sort of weird consequences to having deaf parents. Both my parents are truly deaf. Like growing up, my mother would need to call me on the telephone, but she couldn't use a regular phone. So what she would have to do is type a message on a computer. That message would go to an operator. The operator would then call me, and that's whose voice I would hear on the telephone, which made for some awkward conversations. Like, ring, hello? Hello, my son. (laughs) God? No, no, it's your mama calling. How are you, my beautiful boy? Mom, are you a black dude? And she was. My mom was a black dude, which was weird. Weird for me, weirder for my dad when he found out. He was very upset. I don't know if it was because of that or because my father was deaf or because we were a Jewish family, but I do have fond memories of when my father would force my brother and I to pretend that we were also deaf in order to get the deaf discount at the movie theater. Thank you, father. Are you guys familiar with the deaf discount? No? No, that's because it's not real. It doesn't exist. It's something from the Jewish parts of my father's psyche and the deaf parts of my father's psyche combining together to ruin my life. Well, Moshe, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, your wife, Natasha, has been on this podcast twice now, so I'm, I'm glad you're, you finally made it. Well, she forbade me from doing it. She kind of likes to have her <laughs> man, and then I've got mine, you know? Right, right, right. That's why it took so long? Yeah, yeah. I had to, get, I had to go through a notary and stuff and get her permission. And because the book's coming out, she's being really cool right now. That is really generous of her. Um, you, guys are, you guys are having kind of an eventful week, huh? 
Yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, it's funny because I'm like, my nose is so to the grinder of this um, book release. Like this book is like swallowing me whole in a good way. I mean, I'm proud enough of it that it's worth, it's worth it. You know, I mean, it could be worse, you know, this could be a, um, I don't know, like a, a crowd work special for target.com. But um, <laughs> I'm barely noticing the fact that Natasha broke the internet this week, but, um, but she, but I'm, so I'm mostly just here for her for moral support. Um, no one's asked me how I feel about it. That's pretty offensive. Well, um, this is the time. How do you feel about it? First of all, I think you you don't really know how famous you are until you go topless at a comedy club. I think that's what we've all learned this week. Well, that's the classic saying. I mean, that's, <laughs> I think, uh, I think Shecky Green was the first guy to say that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, how, but, but more importantly, how are you feeling, Moshe? I'm furious. I feel betrayed. Those were mine. And, and, <laughs> and I'm very upset. And, um, no, I, I, to be honest with you, um, it was, I was very proud. I thought it was really punk rock and really cool. And, um, and nothing matters when you think, when you really think about it, nothing really matters. And so if you can do something interesting in this world, uh, I think, uh, I'm all for it and they're good. I mean, you know, I, I feel like, by the way, by the way, I'm I, I'm proud. I'm proud to be the uh, the roommate of those breasts. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, that, that's very nice. That's a nice sentiment. Yeah, <laughs> it's great to see you. Um, we met. I was looking back. It's been quite a while. It was 2017 on the set of Problematic, your your talk show on Comedy Central, um, which really felt like a show ahead of its time in a lot of ways um, that I wish had, had lasted longer, as I'm sure you did as well. Um, but it feels like it's it would be just as relevant or more relevant now than, than it was then. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of the show was to have like these sort of icky conversations from across the ideological um, uh, trench lines and, uh, and to make them fun and make them funny and uh, do a kind of a Phil Donahue kind of mix them up. And um you know, it was a super ambitious show that I don't, I, I'm proud of it, but I'm also, I feel like I, I, one of my regrets is that we didn't get enough runway to figure out how to fine tune that, you know, and, and uh, um, another interesting. Yeah, those shows take time. They take time to figure out. And I also realized like those kinds of shows need to be an hour. They need a commercial break when trying to, you know, it would take us, oh, I don't know, it would take us 20 minutes to like undo the awkwardness to get to the like meaty real conversation in the middle. And by that 22 minutes, you're done on a, on comedy central. So anyway, yeah, I'm still proud of it, but I, I wish, I wish we could have found some more runway to execute it a little bit more perfectly. Well, since then um, I've moved to the East Bay, your, your homeland. Um, so I'm, I'm in Berkeley now. Um, and so much of your uh, book yeah, takes place in, in, uh, in this area in Oakland. Um, so it was really fun for me to read the book and sort of get all of that, uh, aspect of it. Um, so yeah, let's talk about subculture vulture. Um, I think it's a, it was a really fun read and it's a very unique memoir and that it tells your story through these six different aspects of your identity. So can you just talk a little bit to begin with, how did you land on that idea? How did you decide what those six sections were going to be and, and just sort of some of the idea behind the book? Well, I mean, I wrote this, my first book in, uh, I guess, 2010. And it kind of, it's called Casher in the Rye. And it kind of ends sort of the day that I get sober. And I did that like kind of on purpose. Like I didn't really want to like, I wasn't really interested in writing like a recovery memoir, like Tuesdays with Maury, like me and my <laughs> boy growing up together. I, it was like a snapshot of a life in chaos. 
And, um, and, and I'm happy with where it ended, but I got, I used to get all these messages over the years, like, well, what happened next? What happened next? And so I started to, to think about that. And this book is in some ways the answer to that question. And what happened next was like a lot, the rest of my <laughs> life, like this, this, this life in pieces, but also like, I started reckoning with the fact that, um, I have for better or for worse been cobbled together from these six universes, these different worlds that feel like they don't fit together and they only fit together, like, I guess through me and they kind of create like the person that I am. And I started writing, I started writing the rave, the rave chapter first, but I knew that I wanted to, I knew I didn't want to do another straight ahead memoir. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something a little bit more conceptual, something that incorporated like a comedic history because I'm a big fan of those kinds of books, Sarah Vowell's Swimming with Fishes and uh, and Bill Bryson and stuff. And so I wanted to do these like kind of almost gonzo histories of these universes that I've been, uh, embodied and have been who I am. And those universes are in order uh, of appearance, not of significance. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, the 12 Steps and the, the Youth Recovery Movement of the 1990s. Like I said, I got sober when I was 15 on the last page of my book and um, not 15 anymore, but I'm still sober. And I had a, a, a long journey of like picking up the pieces of my life in AA and then becoming this little cheerleader for the other young people that got sober. And then eventually coming to this kind of slow burning crisis of faith where I had to figure out if that was really the place for me or not anymore. Um, and then comes raves. Uh, raves was very the, important. Was yeah. the, well, it was important to me. And to, and, and to be honest, like as much of an eye roll as raves are, like it is as significant in terms of my journey of personal development as uh, as AA was for sure. Because, you know, when I was 16 and a year sober, almost, I started to realize like, okay, I'm like, I need to figure out how to be a human being with a life. I need to be get out in the world and, and, and find what there is outside of a bag and a bottle and outside of an AA meeting. And so I like, randomly saw this this telephone pole with a flyer for Cyberfest 95 and I bought a ticket and went by myself to this party and I walked in kind of a uh, identity crisis adult gangster rap listening white boy with a southern accent and I walked out this molecularly reconfigured human being little rave boy that um, and it was a significant and kind of a monumental spiritual change. Um, and so I very quickly became a rave promoter and a DJ in the nineties in the warehouse scene in, in San Francisco, then eventually an ecstasy dealer. And then eventually burnt out on that. Then comes uh, burning man. I heard that there was a rave in the desert and, uh, and that was enough to get me to drive six hours to figure out what rave was out there. And when I got there, I very quickly realized I was not at a rave. I didn't know what I was at, but I was, I, it was something else entirely. Um, and then I started working there. I spent 15 years working for Burning Man and figuring out like how the psychedelic sausage is stuffed. And, um, and then, uh, and then there are the three that are more, I don't know, I guess permanent in my life that, um, the, the two in particular that I was born into are deafness and, uh, American sign language interpreting. Um, I was an interpreter for 15 years. Everybody in my family's deaf, my mother, my father, my half sister, my half brother, my stepsister, my aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody's deaf. Um, and, and it, it's a story of, um, sort of linguistic and, uh, triumph and, and finding a way to emancipation through seizing your own communication destiny, uh, Hasidic Judaism. My dad, uh, became like a born again, Hasidic Jew. 
and I um, and I would spend my my summer vacations in New York, essentially cosplaying as a extra from Fiddler on the Roof. Well, the rest of the year I was like a secular kid in Oakland public schools, um, and the kind of weird bipolar reality that that was. And then finally, the reason that I'm here on this podcast to begin with, the reason I have the right to write a book in the first place, the history of stand-up comedy and my place in it. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And the, and there's there's so much to each of those sections that I want to get into. It, it did occur to me, because I speak to so many comedians about how they got to where they are, and, and so many of them were really comedy obsessives growing up. They, they always kind of knew they were going to be a comedian. And reading your book, you really get the sense that you went through a lot of different paths and it's almost like some of these sections represent other paths that you could have ended up on aside from comedy. Is that, is that how you think of it? That is it, without question how I think of it. And I think like if anything, this book, if it has any kind of like thesis statement, um, it's that it's that destiny is only something that you can see in hindsight. You can only look backwards and go, Oh wow, this was the path that I was on. Like, it's not possible to see it on the road. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, uh, at least half of comedians that I know watched comedy their whole life and knew that they were going to end up on a stage. I had no idea where I was going. I didn't know if I was going to live to be 18 at the beginning of the book. And and and, and some of my friends didn't. So I, I was li- truly on a kind of wandering path. Like, you know, I mean, I don't want to compare myself to Siddhartha, but you know, sort of what Siddhartha was doing is like just sort of wandering from thing to thing to see what value there is in these different worlds. And, you know, uh, similar to that, to to that journey, like I did burn out on a lot of these worlds, but I kept something of them in me. And they led me to comedy in this kind of extreme roundabout way. But like, I have this memory of, um, of, I was at the, the crossroads between, I was going to go get a degree in Jewish uh, in social work. Uh, I got into graduate school for social work because I thought maybe my destiny is to help other people who had, you know, substance abuse issues like me and, and got so, and need to need that help very young. I thought maybe that's my path. My best friend and my brother were, um, were in, uh, at, in Israel living and, and studying at this seminary there. And then I had stand up, and I just, I had, I was at this almost literal crossroads, you know, where I thought I could go to grad school and become this social worker guy. I could go to Israel for a year and have like some sort of spirit quest with my best friend and my brother, or I can continue to do stand up, which is giving me no indication, like no indication that it's going (laughs) to be successful. Like I had nothing going on at that time, but there was, and I couldn't figure it out. I really just couldn't. And I was talking to my brother who's who is now a rabbi, but was a rabbi in training at the time. He said, you know, sometimes like the universe's will for you is just that you choose something and then you look backwards and go, oh, I see. That's what I was supposed to do. Sometimes you don't have an answer. And so I did. I chose stand up and those things like immediately blipped out in the rear view. Like they just became this unrealistic version of myself, this like a multiverse version of me. And I immediately started getting positive feedback in, in stand up, which led me to the career that I have today. And I cannot imagine being either of those other me's, but I definitely could have turned in a different direction. I was in the middle of a show and a man in the back of the room in the middle of my show screamed out, next! <laughs> I just thought, I thought, next? Ne- I thought, I, w- I, want, I want this guy to die. I want you to die tonight, sir. I want you to crash into a brick wall, catch on fire, and burn to death in front of your family. And when I say I thought that, 
I mean I screamed that into the microphone <laughs> as loud as I possibly could as 500 shocked Irish people looked up at me like, what did he say? Because that's how Irish people sound to me. What did he say? This is what their paws look like for some reason. Oh. I thought, I thought to myself, wait, okay, okay, take, take stock here. Does this guy really deserve to die for what he said? Yes, for sure, definitely. For sure, death upon him. Because think about what he said. Think about how mean it was, next. He didn't say next in order that I would go get the next guy. He didn't think I was gonna be like, were you all done with me? I'll get the next guy then. So I wanna talk more about comedy later, but I thought maybe we could uh, listen to you read a passage from the book. Um, and the one that I that I singled out was the beginning of the Burning Man section, because for me, I, you know, I know about Burning Man somewhat. I've never been and I but I feel like I understand it at least more than I did before after reading your book. So um, do you mind reading that that section for us? Sure. You know, this is funny. This is the first um, podcast I've done that has asked me to read from the book. So I'm kind of kind of happy to do it. On Labor Day of 2020, I was sitting in my house wearing 17 KN95 masks, washing a head of cauliflower and an anti-COVID delousing agent, when I realized that this was the first Labor Day in 20 years that I was spending at home, not caked in alkaline dust, kicked up from the moon-like expanse that is the Black Rock Desert, just outside of Gerlach, Nevada. That year, Burning Man, like the rest of the world, and an ever-increasing number of men in the entertainment industry, and every other industry, okay, let's just say men, had been canceled. Some people were very likely happy about that. Everyone loves to hate Burning Man. You're probably sitting there hearing this and hating on it right now. In San Francisco, along the population center of Burning Man attendees, the locals hold a festival of their very own every Labor Day to celebrate the departure of the smelliest and most polyamorous of San Francisco residents. There are articles written in the local free paper rejoicing in their absence. Often, when I mention to someone that I've attended the festival for more than 20 years and used to work for the organization, I'll get a rolled eye and a remark that they can't stand it. I always ask the same question. Oh, you've been? The answer, invariably, is no. That's not to say that every person would like it. I'm not such a naive acolyte of the movement that I believe that. It's just that Burning Man has such an outsized image in the American consciousness that people have the ability to hate it without really having any idea of what it is. The truth is, Burning Man is more awful and more awesome than most people who have never attended, and many who have, could imagine. It is what they think it is, and also more and also less. It is a wild neo-pagan orgy, an ecological disaster, a muddy mess. It was fine, we liked it, stop asking. A tech-infested billionaires who want to live on the edge club. A countercultural middle finger shoved in the face of a stable society. A drug fest a spectacular art installation zone, an experiential playground, a new kind of religion, a bureaucratic money-making nightmare, a clueless never-never land for white people who think neon-colored dreadlocks will make them people of color, a rave, a drug fest again, a temporary city, an orgy again, an experiment in off-grid communal living, a utopia, a lie, a hypocrisy, a mess, the greatest party on earth. When I first attended in 1996, it was almost none of these things. It wasn't sure what it was. That was okay with me because I wasn't sure what I was either. That's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you talk about there how much it's changed since you first went. Do you feel like it has changed so much that you don't recognize it or can't connect with it in the same way anymore? Or do, are you still feeling like you 
are part of that world? Well, I am part of that world because I have I've, I've shed skin and blood in that world and I'm a citizen of, of that universe. And I think that like, you know, um, connecting with something, not being able to connect with something because it's changed is really about you not being able to adapt. And I think that's kind of a, a through line in the book, too. Like it is different and it is lamer in many ways. I mean, there are parts of it that are cooler, but most of the parts of it are lamer. But I I don't feel a full disconnect. I feel a different connection because it's been, it's like in in, in my bones in this different way um, because I've been going for such a long time. And Burning Man, unlike some of the other universes in this book, is one that I, when I got to that burnt out phase, made a conscious decision um, not to leave it behind and to try to change myself rather than uh, try to lament what the thing had become. Yeah, there's definitely this schadenfreude thing that that happens where people like to sort of watch it from afar and uh you know take pleasure in the in the pain of people who are or maybe there's been some some issues of of late and I don't know if you were there this past year I think there were some uh weather uh problems that caused uh, people to try to get out or were had difficulty getting out or so what how do you kind of react when you see that stuff Oh well, there was this comment in in my I, in my I would call what I saw like god level schadenfreude it was like the top I mean, people were in orgasmic bliss watching the news come in of of the the suffering people of Burning Man, and uh, you know I, I I when I saw that uh, the headline Joe Biden has been briefed on the situation at Burning Man, I was like, okay, I'm now aware that I'm in a fake news story, like because okay, I'll, I'll tell you that I got a comment on my in my Instagram when I posted a video from there this year. And the woman said, um, it's always nice to see rich people cosplaying as poor people suffer. And I thought, good burn, nicely written, sharp. It was good. And I don't want to take away from a nice roast, but she got it wrong. Like we are, Burning Man is not filled with rich people cosplaying as poor people. It is filled with weak people cosplaying as survivalists. And so for, for the people at Burning Man, a minor weather event, Allowing them to pretend that they had survival skills was like we were having our own orgasmic bliss. Like it was all these like tech, you know, uh, uh, CEOs and and venture capitalism people like feeling like for the first time they're, they're, they had vitality and that they were surviving on their own means. Like I will be honest that there was nothing I have not seen ex- ecstasy and joy at Burning Man. In, like I saw this year for many years, because people were celebrating not only the fact that they got to like be there and they love it, but they got to celebrate the fact that they were there through the mud and through, through, through a challenge. And it was cool for me to see that because it was interesting because, yeah, I mean, Burning Man has changed a lot and it's gotten grosser and more mainstream. And there's a lot of things that are hateable about it, a lot of very eye rolly, awful things about it. But like for me, I still try to like focus on the parts of it that I love. And like I've been going for such a long time this year. It felt like it traveled back in time. It traveled back from digital to analog. And we were in this thing that had become a a kind of echo of its own past um, and not in a derivative way, but in a kind of like um, a vital way. And so that was that was fun. And everybody had a good time. Nobody I knew was upset about the mud. So in your face, haters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I remember now you, you posting the, the video, sort of making the case that it, it wasn't so bad. I mean, it wasn't just not bad. It was actively good. You know, it was actively fun because it was something new. I've been going, like I said, like 
you know, you, I, I've been going to, for such a long time, like you should never be in front of like a, you know, 20 foot set of silks with a woman on fire that like falls two stories down the silks, catching herself at the last second and then shooting a plume of propane flame out of her mouth and go, ugh, this again? Like that's the state that I'm in, right? I've seen everything that there is to see there, but I hadn't seen what I saw this year. Coming up, so much more with Moshe Kasher, including how the experience of being publicly Jewish has changed since he wrote the book. And later, how he has managed to thread the needle between both sides of that comedy civil war everyone's always talking about. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our multiple episodes with Moshe Kasher's wife, Natasha Legero, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Moshe Kasher. Well, you, you talk about Burning Man as one of your you know chosen uh, families, um, but I do want to talk about um, Judaism as well because you 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 talk in the, you write in the book about how it it's this part of you that feels permanent or or is permanent, um, and it made me you know think about how it's something that a lot of people don't understand compared to other religions uh, that Judaism is something that you can't just you know casually uh, take on or, or leave behind. Well. Yeah, I mean, Judaism, there's a part in this in this section where I, I talk um, about this idea of um, of of like Judaism being such an old religion that uh, and Hinduism is similar in this way. It's a similar age too. that there used to be once upon a time, no difference between the person that you the ethnicity that you were and the religion that you believed in. There was no difference. If you went to ancient India, I mean, Hindu literally is a Sanskrit word for, for person from the Indus Valley, right? Like it just means Indian person, right? And that's because it's ancient. And at that time, like you don't go to Greece and go like, well, what religion is everybody? Everybody's like, I, I believe in Zeus. I like the, the, the God that turns into a swan and fucks teenagers. That is who I am. I am Greek. It was a foreign concept and a foreign idea. This idea of I am the religion that I have chosen to believe yeah, in. That's the idea a new, of a chosen religion. A, that's a new idea that came about literally um, 
uh, or more or less during the Protestant Reformation, when when um, Martin Luther uh, um, created Protestantism, he said this new concept, which is you should be in a religion because it is the religion that speaks to you, not be in a religion because it is the religion. I'm not saying no one ever converted before. They definitely converted. But this idea that it was about like uh, almost a, cons- a consumer market, right? Like I am a Protestant, I'm a Christian, but I, I buy this version of Christianity. Um, that's a new idea. And so Judaism comes from this time in history where like, there's no difference between atheists, uh, between uh, ethnic Jew and believing Jew. Even though people would convert in, they would then get subsumed into the ethnicity. And so that's why Judaism, because it's stuck around for such a long time, has people who are like, well, I'm a Buddhist, but I'm Jewish. I'm an atheist, but I'm Jewish. It's kind of all of these things at once. And that's part of what feels so permanent about it. It's like, I'm not a, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably more religious than a lot of comedians that are Jewish, but I'm not that religious. I'm not really a believer in much of anything, but I am just sort of a product of this universe that created me. Yeah. And certainly compared to a lot of your family who you grew up with, you are not very Jewish at all, but that they were uh, I mean, on, on the other I, end of I, the spectrum. I am not Jewish in any way to those people. They would not, if, unless I identified who I was, I don't know if they would speak to me in an airport if I said hello. I, I could say, well, actually, I'm this person's cousin, and maybe I'd get a, a, a hello. But, you know, when I see those people in the streets, when I see Hasidic Jews who seem so mysterious and weird to other people, like I, every time it's like, you, you know how um, people that ride motorcycles or VW buses, they like honk at each other and wave as they drive by. <laughs> That's the feeling I get when I walk by a Hasidic Jew every time, because I'm like, on this weird abstract level that I'm still grappling with, I'm like, that's my cousin. That's, that's my family right there. Even though we don't have, I mean, we don't have anything in common. I mean, I'm, I'm the guy from these five other universes, which couldn't be more diametrically opposed to the, the world of Hasidic Judaism. I'm still, when I see people like that in the street, I'm still like, those are my people too. Yeah. I'm curious if you feel like being Jewish, being publicly Jewish has changed since you even, since you wrote the book, um, you know, because of everything uh, no, going on in the world. No, I don't. No, I do. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> I a very like, okay. interesting time. It's a very interesting time to have written a book uh, with Jewish, uh, filled with Jewish history and a, a deconstruction of anti-Semitism and the history of anti-Semitism and the history of the Jewish people and having written it and locked pages uh, way before October 7th. Um, it, uh, you know, the book doesn't really touch on the Middle East, uh, Israel and Palestine at all, uh, kind of uh, kind of on purpose, but also because it's not really about that. It's not a it's not a story of the story of the history of Israel and Palestine is a, I, I, and I wouldn't say a separate story, but it's a it's a separate branch of the story. This this uh, my book is um, in Jewish history can't be uh, uncoupled from the history of Israel and Palestine. But this book is really about the history of the of the Hasidic Jews, the people that I come from, and 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 the, the universe that they that they occupy in my life and also in the world. But you do have family in Israel, right? And you, um, I think, spoke out a little bit about that after October seventh. Um, you also write in the book about your decision to, you know, post something on social media after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, which reminded me of how fraught, how much more fraught that stuff has become since then. And I think you see it, you know, on on social media with comedians and celebrities and, and all people sort of not knowing what's okay to say and, and dealing with the blowback. So how have you just been thinking about that? Um, 
you know, I, I've been thinking in very similar terms to the way that I've been thinking for the last 20 years. I have a degree in Jewish history and in religious studies is what I studied in college. Like I said, I had a lot of different paths that I could have taken. And, um, and, and I feel like my primary feeling is about the moment right now is one of heartbreak is, is anguish and heartbreak and, and, and hopelessness. I, I don't really like being asked about this because I don't, there are not, there is not, you know, I, a hopeful answer. I feel like, you know, when I was in college, I took a history course on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that was 20 years ago. And I remember it feeling unbelievably hopeless then. And it's like chapters more hopeless now than it was then. And I like I am against human suffering and I and I want people to stop suffering and I don't see the, the way out. I mean, I know this is a comedy podcast and a Jewish podcast, but my strong feeling <laughs> today is it's a Jewish a Jew, comedy podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and a Burning Man one. My strong feeling is that if you are Jewish, and probably if you're a Palestinian too, but I don't, I can't speak for Palestinians. Uh, I can only speak. I can't even speak for the Jews. I can just speak really for me. Uh, that it's not a sufficient um, identity to be angry or upset or afraid. Uh, it's got to be deeper than that. For me, anyway, it must be deeper than that. Like my identity ha- cannot just be an expression of of rage and anger and fear. Um, and and so like. There's so much more to the Jewish universe than uh, the conflict in the Middle East. There's 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 artwork. There's comedians. There's uh, movies. There's history. There's synagogues that you can attend. There's meditations. There's texts you can study. Like I just encourage. I guess I encourage everybody um, to go beyond, not to leave it aside, and not to turn a blind eye to the, the horrors that are occurring, but to to do something more than just be angry. Yeah. Well, you you did just recently win an Emmy for this uh, special recipe for change, standing up to anti-Semitism, which is another project that feels like it was maybe ahead of its time a little bit. I mean, it was literally ahead of its time in that I posted <laughs> that we were nominated for an Emmy and everybody was in my comments like, that's not the topic right now. Don't you know what's happening? I go, this was about Kanye. We were yeah. talking about Kanye. <laughs> All the Jews were raised with this idea of never again. But they didn't tell us, like, it's never going to look exactly the same. It might not be the Jews. Right. You know, it's like we've been pre- trying to prevent this, like, crystal knock very specific, yeah. crystal knock, right. specific thing from happening. It's like, it's not always going to look the exact same. It's going to, it's going to morph, yeah. right. you know, for the, I think we've all seen in the last few years, like, there's a million little versions of what happened. It doesn't have to be the Holocaust yeah. to rhyme with it. I kind of could get the critique that you should have been talking about it even then, but still, it was just like the timing was like, look, I mean, the idea that, that there can be no expression of, you know, like a fear and anguish around a bigotry uh, without uh, contextualizing it in um, in the current moment, I don't think is a, is a, is a fair one. And I don't I, I think that that you can be simultaneously deeply afraid and deeply uncomfortable and deeply um, uh, scared of of a, a burgeoning hatred that was occurring way before. Um, October 7th, and I know that obviously the situation that was occurring way before October 7th too, and also be filled with heartbreak and compassion for all the innocent lives that are being lost in Palestine. I want to talk about comedy, which seems like it, it was more accidental than almost any of these other things, how you ended up becoming a comedian. I was in college and I was studying playwriting and acting and kind of trying to figure out which thing I wanted to do. And I didn't know which thing I wanted to do. And then I was in, a, I was on a semester abroad in Israel uh, during the 
the second intifada and the, the semester got cut short. And I came home with nothing to do. I had no school to go to. And I, I went to New York for just to hang out because I had nothing to do. And an old friend who I had grown up with and had sort of studied improv with um, in her basement, Chelsea Peretti, who's a great and famous comedian um, now, was doing stand-up. And she said, yeah, I do. I called her and was just like, what's up? I mean, I just had kept in touch with Chelsea and she went to high school with my brother. And I said, what's up? I'm in New York. And she's like, well, I do stand up now. I go, well, what is, what is, what do you, what is that? I don't even know what that means. Like, I mean, I know what it means. I've seen stand up, but I, I, I saw Delirious and I, like my brother played me Janine Garofalo's comedy half hour, but I had no, like, I had zero information about that. That was a thing a, a, a mortal could do. And she took me to a show. That night, Patrice O'Neill and Sarah Silverman were on the bill. It was at, um, it's a good at Pianos, show. I think. Yeah, well, it was like The Show. She took me to like The Show. I didn't know what The Show was. I didn't know who either of them were. But when they started talking, by the way, this whole book is about these moments where I sort of walk through a doorway into this new universe and just go, oh, I'm different. Oh, oh I have been reformed. And I listened to Patrice and Sarah do stand up. And I was like, I was, I don't think I could say I wasn't offended, but, or appalled, but I was definitely shocked that you could do that. Like I had been writing these like long form monologues. I was trying to like, you know, make these like thoughtful Spalding gray kind of essays. And they were just like, they took away all the bullshit. And it was just like this razor of like, this is funny. And I remember Patrice was making fun of Michael J. Fox. I, I remember that. It's the only <laughs> thing I remember about the material. And I was just like, well, you can't, I'm sitting there going, like, you can't do that. You can't make fun of Michael J. Fox being sick. Like that's, that's, it's so wrong. And then everybody's laughing. It was this like real reconfiguration of like what you can do or what I could do with my writing. I go, oh, you can just be funny for the sake of itself. And that that's a goal. And that that's a good goal or good. I don't know if good, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sufficient goal. And then the next night I had another reconfiguration because Chelsea was on a show and she said, come to this show. And then I saw Chelsea do stand up, and I was like, Oh my God, like those two Titans that I saw last night, this is a, a human. I know her. She's, she's like me and she's doing, she's, she made it feel more achievable. I didn't even know about achievable. She made it feel like a, a, a human being could do it. And I go, and she was funny too. And I go, oh my God, she's killing like those people last night. I'm, I'm, okay. So I said to her, when you come to the Bay Area in uh, August, this was in June, I will have written five minutes of material and will you take me to an open mic? And so I did, and she did, and I got on stage and I set the course of my destiny and my career and this book and being on this podcast and meeting my wife and having a kid with my wife. And if I, had gone in any other direction. If I'd gone to grad school, if I hadn't gone to New York that summer, but I decided to, you know, go to London instead, like all of these things, I'd be a different human being. And I think like this letter, this book is like a letter to the human being that I became. You write in the book about feeling kind of caught between these two worlds of, of stand-up, which maybe have more in common than sometimes we pretend. But it's essentially, you talk about Patrice O'Neill sort of represents in a lot of ways or represented that hard club comic, like, you know, can joke about anything, don't tell me what to say crowd. And then there's the sort of more um, alt-comedy progressive thing that you're, I think, also a part of. Um, so can you talk about that and, and how you feel like you fit between those those two worlds? Well, I 
feel like I fit directly between those two worlds. I feel like that's my position. And for better or for worse, by the way, there's a lot of times I wish that I was more um, a, a, of a po- polemicist on one side or the other. There's, you know, I, I, I do feel like um, that, that that extreme has become more and more popular on, in either direction. You know, that's, that's a, a, a path to garner um, act like a fan base. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a hard over here. When I started comedy, um, comedy in general, was more, I always thought comedy had this like lesson to teach society because you would see these comedians from really different frames of reference and sets of ideological beliefs who were like brought together by this kind of common uh, ethic, which is funny, funny over everything. Funny is what counts. Funny is what matters. And so you'd see people that really shouldn't get along in the universe uh, getting along at a comedy club because it was like, well, I hate what you represent, but you're funny, right? And Society has gotten pulled apart like so much harder since I started comedy so that I don't think that equanimity exists as much as it used to. I do think that there are plenty of camps that say, I don't fuck with that camp and I don't fuck with that camp. Those are losers. They're woke, progressive idiots. Those are, you know, racist, awful, sexist. They just they, they can't meld anymore. And I, I actually don't think that's about comedy. I think that really is about like the drifting tectonic plates of society. Um, but I, yeah, it's just a symptom of the political divide that exists in everything it exists. In, you know, I was on a, I was on a lineup the other day at the comedy store and some comment was like, can you please list which of these comedians have uh, Trump derangement syndrome? Cause nobody wants other than liberals wants to see those comedians. I go, first of all, this is Los Angeles. There are liberals here. I don't know if you've read the news, <laughs> but there are liberals in Los Angeles. Second, who's deranged? You don't want to see any comedian that doesn't adhere to your political framework 100%. Like <laughs> the only entertainer you can watch is, is somebody that, that checks off every single, like you need them to agree with you on immigration in order to come watch them do a joke about, uh, you know, having sex at a club or whatever. So also so, like the, uh, the point of comedy is to, uh, you know, open your mind and think about something differently, which is not going to happen if you only watch comedians who you agree with. Well, I, I, and I am from a, a generation where, uh, where that divide wasn't as stark. But I also think a lot of it is about starting comedy in the Bay Area. We didn't have options to be able to sequester ourselves in alternative spaces or in club spaces. We, we didn't have enough stage time at the time. It might have changed at this point uh, to not have to do every different kind of, uh, of, of comedy. You would do club comics and alt comics and black comics and white comics. Like everybody was sort of going to the same spaces to try to get on stage. And as a result, I, um, I had great experiences seeing comedy from all these different angles. And, 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 and I don't, there's no part of me that when I see a special that is, you know, super progressive, um, thinks, why are they doing this to my, my baby? And there's not a part of me that when I see a comic that is uh, that is edgy, thinks like this is ruining all of society. Like I kind of like it all. And uh, and I kind of live in the middle of it all, too. I think I I like to be offensive and I like to be. uh, But I also don't like to willfully hurt people. (laughs) I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. If you get offended by any of the things that I say tonight, that's like totally okay. You're a big lady and you can make that decision. But please don't come up to me after the show and tell me about how offended you were because I was doing some thinking about it right before my pre-show prayer. And uh, I do not give a fuck if you get offended. Not at all. 
But that won't stop people. They'll sometimes, they'll still sort of come up to me after the show, kind of wasting their energy needlessly in the back of the room, like, hey, buddy, yeah, hi, you, over here, hi, yeah, it's me, hey, hi. I was watching your little show, and I need to let you know I was pretty offended by some of the stuff I heard tonight. I'm like, okay, well, if it makes you feel any better, I was just kidding. The whole time. I was joking around, that's my job, I'm a joker. <laughs> so what I wanna do with the rest of our time here is our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm gonna ask you a, a series of questions, starting with the first piece of comedy that you remember making you laugh really hard as a kid growing up. Easy, Andrew Dice Clay. I used to play Andrew Dice Clay, uh, uh, I don't remember what the, what's the most famous one? It's not the Dice Man Cometh, is it? It's, it's his big one, you know, the, the Hickory Dickory Dock. I, and I would play mm-hmm. that in the that was car. Your, that was your jam? It wasn't that it was my jam. It was that I not only got to enjoy it as a little boy listening to it, but I got to play it as my in the car with my mom driving because she was deaf. Because she could, used to yeah, get yeah. you could like, play whatever you wanted. That's that's pretty incredible. So we would both enjoy the the comedy, but also enjoy the comedy of being able to enjoy the comedy. There was like layers to the thing. Oh, so yeah, okay. that was the yeah. first thing I remember enjoying. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny that you could make other people laugh? Yeah, that was in uh, fourth grade. Uh, I used to write these stories, like these kind of roast fantasies about the uh, other kids in class. You know, everybody had superpowers and it was it would make everybody laugh. And uh, and I did it so much that the, my fourth grade teacher pulled me aside and asked me to write the fourth grade play uh, in at Chabot Elementary. And he paired me with I was a very bad student, so he couldn't give me the full test because he didn't think I'd finish it. So me and this like straight A guy, Jesse, wrote the school play. It was called Westward Ho. Uh, speaking of panning for gold, it was about the about a, a family just looking for gold. And he gave me the <laughs> starring role. And then I was such an asshole that he unstarred me in the role. And then he demoted me to Indian number two. And that was, it was, a, it was painful. I rem- my line I remember was, uh, we are friends. We are here to help you. Here, take these berries. And I've been <laughs> writing dialogue like that in my career ever since. We talked a little bit about your first time, you know, getting up to perform stand-up. Do you remember the first joke that you wrote that really worked, that you got a laugh, that you made you think, oh, maybe I, I have something here? Yes, I remember the first joke I ever wrote. It's, it's actually in my first Netflix special. It's the joke that I wrote for Chelsea's visit uh, about uh, schizophrenic pride. Uh, it was uh, about how homosexuality used to be considered a psychological uh, disorder, but now we know that it's just like a, a, a part of the, the mosaic of society. How cool would it be if in 50 years from now, things we currently consider to be disorders are just an accepted... Anyway, it was this thing about like the schizophrenic pride parade. And it was a pretty good joke. I don't know. It's pretty sophisticated uh, for early... (laughs) Oh, by the way, it was very sophisticated for my first joke. Uh, Very. And then I wrote... Possibly too sophisticated. And then I wrote like, you know, open my crap for the next like four, three or four years. It's not like I just wrote like that always, but I got... I do feel like that was a gift from the comedy gods that the first joke I wrote was like a smart, funny, like it got me through the door long enough to stick around and, and, and then be able to write stuff like that again in the future. But it, it took a long time. I don't know if you know this, but 50 years ago, homosexuality was considered like a psychological disorder. And, and thank God we've come far enough to know how insane that is. But the comic in me did get to thinking, how cool would it be if in 50 years from now, the things that we currently consider to be psychological disorders are just kind of accepted as a warm part of the mosaic of society. 
Like specifically, I'm thinking, how cool would Schizophrenic Pride Weekend be? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we schizophrenics are everywhere today. We are doctors. We are lawyers. We are dark servants of the evil Lord Agamemnon. I think the Schizophrenic Pride Parade would probably be a lot of fun. Look, all the prominent schizophrenics came out. Look, it's Julie and Tracy and Bill and Joe and Mark and Sarah and Susie and dude, it's just you and me. We haven't even left my apartment. Uh, do you have a story or memory about the first time you met one of your really big comedy heroes, uh, just someone you really looked up to in the comedy world? Well, I mean, I, I have a lot of memories like that. You know, I got to open for Patrice eventually, the guy that, that, that scared me and changed my life. And, and, uh, and he took me out to eat and he gave me a, a joke that uh, he kind of he made fun of me. He said, Moshe Kasher, ugh, your name might as well be Jewish Jewish, which I always thought was a <laughs> pretty... That was cool. I remember Colin Quinn opening for Colin. He came up to me with like a notepad with notes for me, uh, like tags and stuff. And I thought that was just such a cool thing. Um, I mean, that's what comedy is. It's like you, you do this thing and you're so far on the outside. I mean, I didn't see a path to a career for years. I never even thought about a career. I, I know other comedians in my generation did. They got into it to like make it. I didn't even think about making it. I didn't even understand that there was a path to making it for I'm talking for years. It was just like, I'm doing this to figure out what I find here. I remember re meeting Robin Williams and him being super complimentary. You meet these heroes, you meet these, these giants. And, uh, and then the coolest thing is if you stick around long enough, you'll um, be able to think some of the giants are like kind of annoying. You'd be like, <laughs> now that's how you know you've made it. When a person who you would have met at the beginning of your career, you would have been like in awe. You're like, Oh, I don't, I don't. I'm not going to that party. I don't want to stand next to that that giant. I'm I'm good. Is there, is there someone that's you're thinking about right now, or don't you try to pry as if <laughs> as if I would answer that question? What was the thing that sort of made you think you could have a career? Was there a, a first big opportunity that that really uh, made a difference? I'll be honest. The thing that made me feel like I could have a career was those people who knew what was up, and they started getting. Uh, snatched down to LA and I started to get jealous and I started to go, why them and not me? What's going on here? And, um, and then that is what sort of started this striving where I go, I was going to try to make it. And, um, and I am lucky that that happened to me because I think it made me a better performer. It made me a better uh, comedian because when they all left, I was like, I was kind of the last one for my generation to kind of get whisked into like the LA Hollywood world. And it made me try harder and it made me like grind and work. Uh, and, uh, and I'm, I, I am grateful for that. Finally, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Uh, I mean, yeah, there's a million, I guess, like, I guess like what comes to mind first, I don't know how great of a story this is, was, but was sitting at the back of the room at the punchline uh, for like two years. Uh, and looking at people going up who you, you start to, um, when you're in a situation where you're not getting what you want, you start to fixate on certain comedians as if they're, they are the re they, their badness, their, their, their unfunniness is like, it becomes louder and louder and louder in this very <laughs> particular way. Uh, and, and, um, and, and you, so you start to fixate on these specific comics and then 
you know, just that, that humiliating experience of like sitting there preening your neck for the booker to walk by trying to make eye contact or say something as she walks by that will make her kind of intrigued by you. And, um, and then I, you know, I remember I went to, uh, this is a story in the book, but I finally got the first thing I ever got was a spot on this, um, this, uh, comedy festival, laugh up a lose. It was like a black comedy festival. And I got, uh, invited as like the diversity guy. And I, I flew myself out. I put myself up. I got to the shows and I was, it was the most excited I'd ever been. I was like, my career, it has begun. Yeah. And, um, and, and there was no, they had done no promotion for the show. There were no audience members. Like it's a I problem. flew out for the biggest opportunity of my life and there was no one there to watch except uh, bookers from Comedy Central and managers <laughs> and agents. They were there, but nobody else was there. So they got, you got, it was cool. You got an opportunity to like bomb super hard in front of like tastemakers and gatekeepers <laughs> yeah. that would form an opinion of you there and that would last <laughs> forever. So I, you know, it's just bomb city, bomb, 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 bomb. And then, um, it, I mean, it was that feeling uh, by the end of the weekend where my blood was like, felt like it was, po- it was like made of acid. And, um, <laughs> and I, I had to fly home and it was the Sunday night of, of the punchline. And the only way uh, to perform at the punchline was to be in costume. It was the Sunday before Halloween. And I was like sitting in my living room, looking at my this space uh, astronaut outfit going, what am I going to do? Am I going to quit comedy or am I going to? have some dignity and put that spandex astronaut costume on. I did it. <laughs> put the costume on. I went to the, the, the club that night and the booker came up to me, Molly, and said, you're next. And I had, I think to this day, one of the best sets of my life. And I felt like I unlocked this thing. And it was only because of pain that I was able to unlock it. That's an incredible story. Um, Moshe, thank you so much for, for doing this, for writing this great book. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really fun talking with you. Nice talking to you too. Thanks for having me. Bye. Okay, thanks again to Moshe Kasher for being my guest on this week's show. His new book, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes, is available now wherever you get your books. He's also currently on tour with upcoming stops in Portland, Chicago, Brooklyn, and Los Angeles. You can get tickets for all of those shows at MosheKasher.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.